0: And now, live from beautiful Myrtleby, South Carolina, you're watching My Fellow
1: Americans with your host, Spike Cohen. Yes! Oh, thank you, it's me, thank you. Yes,
2: oh. Oh, thank you, thank you so much. No, I'm clapping for you. No, I'm so happy. Thank you so much for being on. Keep clapping. Clap for the miracle. How would we know that you wanted the miracle if you didn't keep clapping? Welcome to my fellow Americans. I am literally Spike Cohen. This is Wednesday, September the 8th. This month, this year, is almost three quarters over, and that is horrifying this summer is almost over. That's almost as horrifying. But we're going to have a very special episode. Why? Because you're here. And also our guest is here. But uh, this is a very, very special episode. Uh, yes, I know that I... I don't know. It doesn't really show as well. But I am extremely, extremely sunburned. It hurts everywhere that I was out in the sun. Uh, because I just got back from the Spike Cohen Florida tour. Boop, 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 boop that's supposed to be the Miami Vice. Anyway, I had a really good um, tour of Florida. It's very sunny down there, and I now look like this. But I'm very happy to be back, and uh, and I'm very happy for us to be doing the show. And uh, we have a really great guest for you, but we will get to that shortly. This is a Muddy Waters Media production. Check us out everywhere. All social media platforms, all podcasting platforms and venues. Check us out Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, Anchor, Periscope, Bytunes, Google Play float twitch apple whatever that's called podcast uh, amazon podcast spotify we're on uh, where everything everywhere like us follow us hit the bell comment now share do all the things do all of the algorithm things that, that facebook likes and youtube and twitter let big tech know you're showing showing them who's boss by using them a lot for us And also, if you are on YouTube, be sure not just to subscribe to us, but hit the bell because I want your phone to explode with notifications every time we go live. And be sure to share this if you're watching it live, even if you're not watching it live. If there's an ability to share whatever you are watching or listening to, do that. Share it right now. The last thing I want is for you and your closest loved ones to miss out on a roughly hour-long Libertarian podcast on a Wednesday evening. Give the gift of Spike Cohen today. Kids love it. This episode, of course, is brought to you by the Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus, the second largest caucus in the Libertarian Party. That's been true for three months now, and I still giggle every time I say it. It's just ridiculous. Uh, We are also the fastest growing caucus in the Libertarian Party, which means that at this rate, in the next year or so, we'll be the largest caucus in the Libertarian Party. And if you want to become a part of this uh, (laughs) movement, grassroots movement within the party, where we do absolutely nothing, uh, then be sure to go to the Facebook group, Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus. We actually do a lot, but nothing of any real value. Um, go to the Facebook group, Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus. Basically, if you're sick of Cockeye and you just don't want the cockeye fighting anymore, go to this caucus. All the other caucus members and people who don't even know what caucuses are can come here and we just like have fun. So uh, go there, Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus, or... Uh, if you want to become an official voting member of the caucus which means literally nothing cuz we do we again we don't do anything of any actual like political value uh, then go to muddywatersmedia.com/store and pick up a sweet ass libertarian party waffle house caucus button or a shirt or whatever else the gravy king Cumberland Cannabis if you'd like to buy high quality CBD and Delta 8 products from Cumberland C- Can- County Tennessee, well, then go to CumberlandCannabisCo.com. They are viable, ethical, and effective. It's, it's weed. It's weed. I, I don't think I'm supposed to say that, but, I mean, it is. com. Joe Soloski is running to be the next Pennsylvania governor. He is the key to Pennsylvania success. And if you'd like to help old Joe there, who's a fantastic guy, become the first libertarian governor ever, then go to Soloski.com. That's G-O-E-S-O-L-O-S-K-I.com. Mudwater, the most appropriately named product on Muddy Waters Media because it's mudwater. If you woke up today and said, my God, if I never have another cup of coffee, it'll be too soon. Well, I have some great news for you because I have this stuff. It's made of masala chai, cacao, mushrooms, not those kind, turmeric, sea salt, cinnamon, and literally nothing else. And if you're thinking, Spike, that sounds, those things don't seem like they taste great together at all. Well, I mean, you're not wrong, but that's not why you're getting it. And frankly... If you put enough honey on anything, it'll taste like honey. So just do that. Um, and uh, this has one-seventh the caffeine of coffee. So just enough to get you all hyped up like this, because I use it. Uh, but just, but not so much that it gets you all down and sad and you know mentally ill and high blood pressure like this. I don't have high blood pressure. But Mudwater.com. Actually, no. MuddyWatersMedia.com slash mud. And you can get your starter kit today and be just like me. Jack Casey, oh, I didn't switch out the thing, hold on, crap, he's gonna, Jack Casey, uh, we've been saying he's gonna have a third book out for quite some time, and then we didn't think it was true, but it turns out, yeah, no, it is true, now I gotta resize it, here we go, he finally did his books, his third book, I'm having to do this live, that's fun. there we go, that's good enough, uh, so he had the royal green and in silver thrown it, but now he has his third book, crowned by gold which is, I don't know what this book is about. I don't know what any of this is about because as I've told you many times before, if this book, if these books are good, then I'm going to feel bad for making fun of them every week. And if they're bad, then I'm going to feel bad for trying to get you to buy them. So what are these books like? What are they about? Find out for yourself by going to theroyalgreen.com written by possible cult leader, Jack Casey. Adderpan, the most horrifying thing that I've ever experienced in my life. Available on Steam. I played uh, Adder. I actually didn't play Adderpan because I don't want to die from being scared. I did watch a a walkthrough, gameplay walkthrough video, and my God, I don't get this genre of games. I don't understand the desire to be really scared then anxious and then not want to go to sleep that night i don't get it but it's a, if you're into that if you're into being really scared all the damn time uh then this will be right up your alley uh go to steam it's available on steam for only five dollars plus the cost of ongoing mental health care for the rest of your life and probably that of your children fierce luxury by ashley will not scare you Uh, Or your children shouldn't, unless they're scared of high-end bags and accessories, which would be weird. Uh, But Fierce Luxury is a high-end bag and accessory consignment store that's based online. They carry the hottest brands like Louis Vuitton, Chanel, Gucci, and Hermes. Consign with them for only a 30% fee, which is literally 20% less than most consignment stores online. That's what she told me. And I have no reason to think that Ashley... Is lying because she gave us money. If you can find them online at fierce Luxury by Ashley.com uh, and on Facebook in their exclusive group, Fierce Luxury by Ashley, you too can become a part of the high end bag and accessory revolution. Thomas Queter is running for state senate. He's not really running, he's in a wheelchair, but he does like to say that he runs better than Albany, which he finds funny because he's crippled. Um, it's weird that he tells me to say that, but yeah, here we are. Uh, he finds it funny that I feel uncomfortable calling someone else a cripple. But here we are. Thomas Queter is actually one of the most incredible people I know. Um, Incredibly principled. Incredibly. uh, You can't find someone with with more character than Thomas Queter. Um, He cares about people so much. He is incredibly high energy. There is no one who would be better suited to be in the state senate than Tom Squeter and I mean that from the bottom of my heart not just because he's paying me I've been saying that for months I campaigned with him last year during the my vice presidential campaign I went into Binghamton and knocked on doors with him he's incredible uh and uh, if you want to help him become the first libertarian state senator in New York uh, go to tomfor52.com t o m f o r 52.com if after looking listening to all of this you think spike I want to sue you because you've wasted several minutes of my life and I hate you. Well, good luck, pal, because if you're in Florida, I'm going to sue you back by using personal injury attorney Chris Reynolds' attorney at law. He is an incredible attorney. Uh, He will be able to get you major amounts of money, but not if you sue me, bud, because I'm going to sue you back so hard. I'm going to get all of your money. But if you are being injured by someone else, then... Go with it. Go at it. ChrisReynoldsLaw.com. He will get you, like, dumb money, like, st- like where you can walk around, and like, oh, 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 I'm on my cell phone. Oh, no, it's, a, it's, oops, I mistook this giant stack of Benjamins for my phone again. Oops. Like, you'll be able to do that kind of stuff because of Chris Reynolds. Personal injury attorney, Chris Reynolds, attorney at law, ChrisReynoldsLaw.com. Uh, the intro and outro music to this and every single episode of My Fellow Americans comes from the amazing and talented Mr. Joe Davi, J-O-D-A-V-I. Check him out on Facebook. Go to his SoundCloud. Check him out on Bandcamp. Go to joedavimusic.bandcamp.com. Buy his entire entire discography. He's an incredible musical artist. His new album just dropped. It's going to cost you like 25 bucks to get every song that he's ever made. Go buy it right now. You're going to be so happy. I'd like to thank Le Bleu for this delicious, purified drinking water. I'm drinking on this episode, oxygenated with ozone, BPA-free, non-carbonated, made in America, and kosher, like me. If I, well, I don't know if I have BPA's in me, but but if I, assuming that I had BPA-free, then I'm like all these things, and I'm 70% this too, look blue. Shout out to Taron Turks' mom and them as always. Folks, my guest tonight is going to be a real treat if you don't already know him. Uh, he is the National Director of Research at the American Federation for Children. He's the Executive Director uh, at the Educational Freedom Institute. He's an Adjunct Scholar at the Cato Institute. He's a Senior Fellow at the Reason Foundation. Uh he was named on the Forbes 30 under 30 list for his work on education policy. And he received the Buckley Award from America's Future in 2020, blah, 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 blah. Ladies and gentlemen, my fellow Americans, please welcome to the show, Mr. Corey DeAngelis. Corey, thanks so much for coming on, man.
0: Hey, thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, this is this is gonna be fun. I'm really looking forward to this. And uh this uh yeah, you uh you have an impressive resume there even though you are i believe you are, you are are 17 correct
0: 17 what years old oh no i you actually can't call me 30 under 30 anymore because i had a birthday i'm 30 now oh you're 30 oh okay I'm, so you're part of the no 31 under, <laughs> you're now with the I'm 31 the thir- under 30 I was uh, i received the 30 under 30 award when I, when I was under 30 but now i'm 30 so Okay, perfect. Okay,
2: great. So you are now among, I'm going to say that you're now in the Spike Cohen 31 under 31. Or no. All right. Yeah. Yeah, 31 (laughs) under 31. So, folks, uh, be sure to ask us your thoughts and questions, and Corey and I will tell you if you are right or wrong. Now, Corey, uh before we get started, whenever I have a libertarian on my show for the first time, I always ask, what is it that brought you to libertarianism? What's your genesis story? What was it a kind of a, a gradual evolution over time? Was there an aha moment where you realized you were a libertarian? You know, everyone has their genesis story. Tell us the Corey D'Angelo story.
0: I was born. I was born free. That was it. Boom. I've always wow. been this way. Yeah I, I I don't know if I had a a particular moment where things changed. I I mean, I I remember in high school, in my government class, we had a political ideology test where we answered all the questions and then the teacher placed everybody on the board and showed everybody where they were on the spectrum and everybody was kind of in the middle. And then there was a dot on the very far, as far as as you could go in the corner. And that was me. I was the <laughs> sole person in the in the very far libertarian realm, no government intervention, and uh, it, it's just so. I even before I started thinking about things through a political lens, I w- I've always been this way, um, very skeptical of government. And as far as like, I guess a better question was, would be when I turned into an. an from a minarchist to an anarcho-capitalist was sure, yeah. When I started sort of reading that. David Friedman's David Friedman's work in Machinery of Freedom, once I started to figure out that we've had private provision of policing and and that there is a way to provide law and order privately, then I switched from being a minarchist to an anarcho-capitalist.
2: Nice. And that's kind of a similar thing for me, too, because I was always like,
0: well, yeah, I mean, government's evil,
2: but they're a necessary evil. We can't have certain things without having a coercive entity. And then people are like, no, you can do this and that and this and that. And I'm like, "Okay, so we don't need them at all. So you are mostly known uh, and you are I mean, you're on everything. You're on more stuff than I am. You're you're on you're on Fox. You're on Newsmax. You're on I think you've been on OAN, too, right?
0: Yeah. I think that was the first time I've been on national TV was OANN.
2: Oh, okay. And, uh, I mean, you've been on all over. You are routinely featured in uh, uh, the National Review and many other publications. Um So but in your kind of your main wheelhouse, as it were, is in the realm of education, school choice, uh, policy on on schooling in general, uh, you know, getting the teachers unions out of schooling and all all of that. What made you decide that that was the thing that you were going to focus most? It's obviously not the only thing, but the thing that you were going to do your your heaviest focus on.
0: Yeah, so I attended government run schools all through K through 12 education in San Antonio, Texas. But for high school, I was able to go to a something called a magnet school, something that you're not residentially assigned to. It's still run by the government, but you can at least choose a particular type of specialization in this, with, with the magnet school model. And that magnet school was actually on the campus of the school that I was residentially assigned to. And so for four years, I was able to see the night and day difference of the quality of education and just different school cultures. And so I feel like that opportunity to go to a school that I wasn't residentially assigned to that didn't have that geographic monopoly had a positive impact on my life. And so I've thought about that and how I, I would like other families to be able to have those kinds of options as well. But it really shouldn't be, it shouldn't be limited to government run schools, families should be able to take their children's education dollars to private schools, charter schools, and to home-based education as well. But that's really where I first got a glimpse into this idea of school choice. And then uh, I did my bachelor's and master's in economics, which really opened my eyes to the problems with K-12 education, which really stem from having these geographic monopolies. In in general, in the United States, you live in a particular place and you're assigned to a particular government-run school, regardless of how well they do, which creates huge monopoly power especially when you combine that with the compulsory funding through the property tax system. So I had, and I had a great advisor throughout my bachelor's and master's experience at the university of Texas at San Antonio. And he recommended that I go do my PhD in education policy at the university of Arkansas. And that's where I really started to study the effects of these voucher programs and private uh, and private charter schools uh, in more detail, my first study looked at the effects of the Milwaukee voucher program on criminal activity. Uh, but I had great advisors out there as well: Patrick Wolf and and Jay Green and Robert Moranto were on my dissertation committee, and they and they're some of the biggest uh, private school choice researchers in the nation. So that's how I really got started into all of this. But right after the PhD, I started at the Cato Institute, and then I hopped over to Reason Foundation, and now I'm at the American Federation for Children.
2: And that's an interesting thing about education is that it's sort of a self-fulfilling thing when government's in charge of it. So if government is in charge of telling people how to think and, and how to learn and what to learn and what to think, then it's that much easier to condition everyone from being a child to you know what the government says is right, and you should always listen to their authority, and you should always presume that they're correct, or at least that we're correct if the party that you know the people in that school like is in charge as if that matters and and they can kind of create this conditioned herd mentality uh, within people while also giving them a terrible education. you know we we look at the fact that when the uh, National Education Association was uh, created or I guess recreated in nineteen seventy nine. In that, uh, what, 41 years, 42 years since, the U.S. government uh, adjusted for inflation has spent something like 3 or $4 trillion. And education's gotten worse across the board. By every metric, every way they can measure, it's gotten worse in every way. The only thing that's improved or increased is the amount of money that's being spent. Um, t- what are your thoughts on why the federal government and there've been a few different people that have asked this kind of similarly so i'm trying to figure out exactly how to say this in one um uh, you know in in one question but what are your thoughts as to why the federal government ever got involved with with especially K through 12 education in the first place
0: yeah i mean it's really hard to say what the motivation was um uh, you can you can look at the intentions of particular policies and and why they created the, the Department of Education. Uh, but but I think you're right in that since the Department of Education was created, which it, sh- it should have never been created in the first place because the word education is not included in the U.S. Constitution. It should well, be left to the states. But academic outcomes haven't gotten any better, whether you're looking at math or reading outcomes. And if you look since, the 19, since 1960, we've increased... Inflation adjusted per pupil education expenditures in public schools by 280 uh, percent. And as you have said, the outcomes have been pretty stagnant, but it might be because the, the purpose isn't really about getting a better education. Maybe it is about controlling people and having them uh, Listen to authority. So in, in another way, maybe they are they are doing what they're they're supposed to. And maybe it really isn't about the kids in the first place. Maybe it's about creating a jobs program for adults, which they've been really great at doing. They've increased the yeah. number of employees in the system. Just a few years ago, they the number of support staff or all other staff besides teachers have finally surpassed the number of teachers in the system. There's about three million teachers in the system, but there's about 3.1 million non-teaching staff in the system. Uh, so there's been all of this administrative bloat and staffing searches, which is actually great for teachers unions because it means more dues paying members. Right. Uh, but it's not so great for the students in the system, which they're not seeing the money And And you know what? The individual teachers aren't really seeing the money either, because if you're just putting more people into the system, while that benefits your bureaucracy and, and your... Uh, the, the the power of the labor unions for the individual teachers they're still digging into their pockets to pay for for supplies each year and teacher salaries have been pretty stagnant over time too because again the money's going towards administrative bloat and not into the classroom because these are monopolies they don't have any particularly strong incentives to cater to the needs of their customers yeah
2: because it turns out like we talk a lot about socialism almost as this obscure thing socialism's bad this is actual socialism this is government creating a monopoly by taking over the means of production and distribution and provision of a specific sector of the entire society that we live in and this is what we get and, and it's not the only thing they do that with and we can talk more about that in a bit but you know as a result of that We see what happens when government is totally in control of something. Total unaccountability, uh, massive cost overruns, the service that they're providing gets worse and worse. And not just does it get worse from a a measurable outcome standpoint, but it also becomes more and more self-serving and more guided towards just convincing people that government is right in all things as opposed to actually teaching or educating them or, or providing the actual service. Um, and so it's really so there have been a couple questions here, one about uh, a few about homeschooling and a few about school choice. So let's talk about let's start with homeschooling. Uh, what are your thoughts in general on on homeschooling?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm an advocate of school choice. I don't care what type of school that is. If that's a government-run school and that works best for you for whatever reason, I think you should still be able to choose that as an option. But if not, you should be able to choose a private or charter school or a homeschool. So I'm I'm usually hands-off. I don't care what type of approach that you take. But personally, I think homeschooling is, is the best approach. I mean, education is simply a form of raising children. And the best way to do that is to home educate the child. Um but the thing is uh, a lot of people have to go to work there it's really yep. complicated to yep. to to have home based education. So there are other ways to do it and a lot of families have figured this out over the past, past year. One they figured out that they could do it on their own because they were kind of forced into this situation where all the schools closed, yep. closed in March of 2020. And some families that didn't think that they could do it figured that started to figure out that well maybe I'm maybe, maybe this isn't so bad. And they've become they've become more confident in their skills with educating their own kids at home. But then other families started to to, started to figure out these other kinds of situations like micro schools or uh, the the, the new hip term over the past year and a half has been pandemic pods where five to 10 children get together in a household. Families essentially economize on the process of homeschooling Mm. and it's not one-on-one instruction where it's your own kid, but it's kind of a, a similar situation where you have very small class sizes, you're in a home-based setting, and you can outsource that to another family and make it more economically feasible since a lot of families can can get together and um, kind of team up in order to get the job done. So I think uh, that that's another feasible option that's I don't I would I would say not as good as homeschooling but uh in a, in some ways it it could be better than homeschooling in that it's less costly and maybe if there's another family that's um really good at at math instruction maybe your family is better at the English instruction you can kind of uh team up in order to provide a really well well-rounded education
2: right division of labor and and like you said you know homeschooling might be the ideal for a family that's able to do that and devote that kind of time and resources to it, as opposed to if, you know, you have a a single working parent, for example, that might not be feasible. You know, they may need to have the child going somewhere or the children going somewhere (laughs) to learn. Uh, Or if, you know, you, you might have a parent that's not very well educated and ...feels more comfortable having the child go, so whether it's a, a private school, charter school, even a well-performing public school, uh, or like one of these, like you said, the, the homeschooling pods or homeschooling yep. co-ops or micro schools or whatever. This is the beauty of the market, is if you let parents decide and they look at all the available options, they can put their child where they actually want them to, um, and they can flourish. Or they can take them there and they go, "And eh, that wasn't quite as good as I thought it would be, let mm-hmm. me try this instead... Can you describe briefly? Because I I think we often get caught up in you know uh, specific questions of schooling, but can you describe briefly what the current system looks like? For example, for like a low income per low income pa- family, a low income child, what like the public schooling mandated option looks like, absent something like school choice.
0: Yeah, I mean it is this. Uh, educational socialism that you kind of hinted at earlier is that uh, we really shouldn't call them public schools uh, because one, they're not public goods; they are uh, excludable and rivalrous in, in consumption. Um, so they're not an economic public good. They're not, uh, in a lot of ways, they're not good for the public in that they don't provide a great education. Public education. And then they're not open to the public like a public park. Whereas, you know, if you walk by a particular park, you can attend. You can attend the park right, that you right, want to right. attend and, and, and go to. But but when it comes to schools, for the most part in America, you live in a place, you live in a neighborhood, and you're geographically assigned to a particular government-run school. So I. I I would rather we call these government schools. I mean, they're not accountable to the public. They're not open to the public. They're not public goods. They are run yeah. by the government. They're operated by the government. They're regulated by the government. They're assigned by the government. Their attendance is compelled by the government. They are government schools. That's the better term yeah. for the for what we're talking about. Um, but the basic situation is, If you're assigned to a lower quality school, which happens to be the case for lower income neighborhoods, you happen to be assigned to the worst government schools. If you want to get out of that situation, you don't have a lot of options. And there's huge transaction costs with getting out of that situation. One is you can you can move to a better neighborhood, and for a lot of low income individuals, that's not just a, that's just not a feasible option. Even if you right. do have the income to move to a better neighborhood, if you want to switch schools, that's a huge costly endeavor. Just imagine if you didn't like the grocery store for whatever reason that was in your neighborhood, and in order to, to leave the Walmart that you were geographically assigned to, you had to move houses to go to another Safeway or Trader Joe's. That wouldn't make any sense, and the grocery yeah. stores wouldn't have any incentive to cater to your needs to do a better job because they w- would know that they pretty much got you. If, if, if you want to leave, you have to move, which is extremely costly. And then two, if you don't want to move houses, another option is you can pay out of pocket for private school tuition and fees, essentially paying twice, once through the property tax system or if you're renting through higher rents, uh, which include higher property taxes, or and and look for lower income families if if you can't afford to pay twice if you can't afford to pay out of pocket for the private school tuition and fees you're pretty much again stuck with the current system in the lower quality public schools meanwhile in the U.S. according to the 2019 data from the U.S. Census Bureau we spend about 15 or 16 thousand dollars per student per year whereas average private school tuition is about 11 or 12 thousand dollars per year so we're paying a ton of money per child to go to these schools that aren't working for them and we're forcing the kids to go to a particular go to to schools that aren't working for them it's a huge um, infringement on inv- individual liberty particularly to for the least advantaged because let's face it the most advantaged in society today already have school choice in the sense that they can afford to live in the better neighborhoods they can afford or at least be le- more likely to afford to pay out of pocket for private school tuition and fees and adequate home-based and adequate home-based education. Uh, so in, in a sense school choice I would argue is an equalizer because funding the student directly with that 16 15 16,000 would allow more families to have options when it comes to their kids' educations.
2: Yeah, exactly. It, the interesting thing is like you said it's govern it's a government school. It's also a segregated school you are literally sched- segregated by your zip code you know this is the new redlining and it's yes it's done based uh, on income and not on race but especially in urban areas where income and race are are almost directly tied where you have you know a, a direct correlation between income levels and race you know you have the people that you know traditionally lived in that neighborhood and who are people of color br- black and brown people who are typically lower income and then you have you know people coming in and gentrifying specific areas that are higher income and now suddenly the higher income areas have better schools but the lower income people who are typically also Uh, uh, black racial minorities, uh, they now are segregated into poorly performing schools, even though it wasn't racial necessarily racially based, it is income based. So it's classist at the very least. Um, And they're basically telling people, like you said, either pay more out of pocket or move to a richer area. In other words, stop being poor, and your kids will be allowed to have a good education. Now, an interesting thing about this, Corey, is that, you know, using the language of the left. You know, most people on the left will say that even if a policy isn't explicitly intended to be racist, if it has disproportionately bad outcomes for people of color, then it is inherently systemically racist, meaning that it may not be explicitly intended to be racist, but it's from a system wide standpoint, it has a bad racial outcome. So, I mean, explain to me how, again, using the language of the left, that the current government school system that is heavily advocated for by the teachers unions explain to me how that isn't by their definition systemic racism
0: it is i mean it is systemic racism according to their definition it leads to inequitable outcomes it leads to inequitable opportunities by by race and by class so um if you if you corner them on this and 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 point it out they won't say that it isn't systemically racist. They'll they'll agree with you. They'll, they understand that it's a problem, but then they'll turn around and and support policies that force kids into these in- inequitable systems. They'll force kids into systemic racism, which is absolutely ridiculous. On the one hand, they'll they'll say their argument will be, well, that's right, but the solution is we just got to throw more money at the problem. But the yes. the, the issue is that it's a system. Problem. You can throw more money into a, a, a systemic issue, and that's not going to fix the root cause of the problem because you can spend $100,000 per kid and still get the same results if you don't fix the incentives to spend that money wisely. And as I right. said before, we've thrown more money into the system before. For example, there's a study by Kennesaw State University's Ben Scaffidy. He looked at the data from 1990. 1990- to 2014. uh, It's called back to the staffing surge. He found that there was a real inflation adjusted per pupil expenditure increase in public schools by 27%. uh, But teacher salaries in real terms actually dropped by 2%. So you can throw infinite resources into the system. But if they have an incentive to waste it, nothing's going to change. And as we've seen over the past few decades, nothing has changed. And it's Horrific that people support and prop up a system that we know is not going to do anything different going forward. I mean, how long do parents of of how how long do parents in low income situations have to wait for their kids to get a better education? That their their approach is always ah just wait a couple more years, it'll get better. We just put we'll just raise property taxes, we'll just spend more money on it. Your kids will be fine in a few years. And then here we go, we wait We wait several years, decades later, your kid's out of the system and the system has already failed them despite getting more resources. Families shouldn't have to wait a second longer. We already have the funding in the system that's more than adequate to pay for a great private school education or a home-based education, $16,000 per kid. Give that money to the families, let them find something else. That's where our side kind of differs with the solution to the systemic racism, which is Give the money to the kids. Education funding is supposed to be meant for educating children, not for propping up and protecting a particular institution. And that's why I've said we should fund students, not systems.
2: Yeah, absolutely. The interesting thing about this is um, all of the uh, things that you're advocating for right now, where the government's still funding it, uh, at least at this step, the government's still funding it. They're just letting the consumer uh decide where it where the what service provider gets the money that's the argument for medicare for all that you have this you know a healthcare system that the government pays for so everyone can get it but they decide where it goes as opposed to for example the va or um or like the national health system in the uk uh, or some of the government healthcare system is in, in other countries, where not only does the government pay for it, but the government actually staffs the hospitals and, you know, uh, and, and the doctor's offices and decides what is or is not going to be covered and, and basically covers it, you know, from the top down. And, you know, even though obviously a fully free market system where the government wasn't even involved in in, you know, extracting these trillions of dollars from everyone to pay for education would be the best, in the meantime, as a step down from that, this is basically what Democrats and the left call for constantly, which is, you know, a, a a Medicare for all system. This would just be, you know, basically schooling for all where they get to decide where it goes. Uh, it's a very interesting thing. So let's break down some of the uh, well, I guess before we get into that, let's mm-hmm. let's give an example of just what a mess we're facing under the current system. So uh, a few weeks back. The CDC doubled down on their recommendation that the uh, that the uh, s- s- school systems should not drop the mask mandates, and if they don't have mask mandates, that they should implement them, and they showed a bunch of different studies. Uh, they showed that schools that had implemented better um, ventilation, had improved the ventilation in the schools, um, had a, a much lower spread of COVID, which would make sense if air is moving more freely, then it's harder to harder to spread a virus that's spread by droplets. Um, if uh, the, the schools where the teachers were, uh, I believe, that where the teachers were vaccinated, that had a lower rate of spread, which would make sense. You have some people that are, are, are vaccinated. There were a few different things, but the... The thing that they were actually calling for, the studies they had done had shown that there was no difference between the schools that did have mask mandates and the ones who didn't have mask mandates in terms of the spread of COVID. Whether that's because, you know, a certain number of kids were still using masks or because masks aren't that effective when you're dealing with kids who trade them with each other and get snot all over them. And, you know, a seven-year-old doesn't know how to properly use a mask in a clinical way. Um, Whatever that reason is, it didn't really affect things. And yet they were recommending that that continue. And that seemed weird. But then mm-hmm. something recently, we, we found out something earlier today, didn't we, Corey?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're not they're not following the science. They're following the political science. They're yeah. following the pressure groups that are interested in these types of policies. And we saw this a couple of months ago in May, uh, May 1st, I think the New York Post had the article come out where it was exposed through a FOIA request that the American Federation of Teachers, uh, who uh, Randy Weingarten is their president, second largest lab, uh, teachers union in the United States, had lobbied to the CDC to change their guidance on school reopenings. They, and, and it just so happened that the CDC took two... Uh, two of uh, they they adopted the language of the aft on at least two occasions nearly verbatim and one of the biggest ones that really made a difference was that they they tied the reopening of schools and that recommendation to community level transmission rates rates which had been found not to been related to school level transmission rates right right um which which didn't make any sense with. The science. So that, that blew up in their face. And then just today, um, Fox News uh, exposed uh, some information that was leaked to them from an organization called Americans for Public Trust uh, through a similar FOIA request. And months ago, what they found out through the emails was that the largest teachers union, the NEA, the National Education Association, was lobbying to them to change the masking guidance you might ask, well, why are the teachers unions real interested in the masking guidance? Uh, Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. And and why why would they want to force kids in public schools to wear masks? One is that because there isn't any school choice, they don't have any uh, particularly strong incentive to care about what families and their customers actually want. And at the same time, they want to reduce any risk whatsoever, even if that's just a perceived risk, and no matter how low that risk is whatsoever. So the mask they may feel more safe even if the science shows that they're not actually going to be more safe by masking kids because they don't right. really have to worry about what the families actually want. But then because there's no accountability. Yeah, so there's no there's no feedback mechanism. So they can do right. whatever they want to abuse the kids and, and and their customers without feeling the pain by from families voting with their feet. But then secondly, they profit from chaos. Uh the teachers unions can use the state of disorder as an argument for why that for for lobbying to the taxpayers for even more money as a prerequisite for re- returning to a state of normalcy it's kind of hard for you to make an argument that you need more resources for things to get better if things are actually already fine so if you have people that are upset with the service and you have a lot of this back and forth nonsense with either with going in person versus remote or having masks or not having masks when parents are upset and customers upset are upset the unions can make the case to the taxpayer that well you know it's it's because we just need more resources yeah and so they profit from this state of disorder and and so this was some breaking news that just happened today that um i I, I posted um I posted on Twitter there it is and then on Facebook I shared it and said, "Knew it." I, I I knew it. I I also have a similar CDC uh, FOIA request that's pending right now, um, trying to see if there was a, a, a another type of collusion with the CDC and the unions on something else. But we'll see what happens if that comes out. I haven't got. Certainly- I I got expedited uh, approval for the request, and it's already been over a month, and they still haven't gotten me the information yet. So we'll see how long it takes, but.
2: I, listen. Nothing would surprise me at this point. It's like you said that the teachers' unions and the basically the government. Let's call it like the 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 school industrial complex, the the government agencies, the unions, and the crony corporations that have built a cottage industry around controlling this system of education. Uh, they grandstand. They cause suffering, immeasurable suffering among mostly you know poor and middle class students and families and then they grandstand on their stuff written to push for even more money and even more power and more control in this sort of you know constant uh ever worsening cycle of make things worse say that it's because you need more power and more money then make things worse say that it's because you need more power and more money and this is what happens when you don't have a viable alternative. When the people are a captive audience, this is what monopolies look like. This is what actual government-run socialist programs look like is no accountability, things getting worse, and those things getting worse being used as an excuse to push for even more control and even more money and and so forth. Let's talk about, well, I want to talk about the alternative to that, but I need you to admit right now that you are actually AFT.
0: You got me. You got me. Well, not
2: what actually that okay, so you are Corey DeAngelis, but <laughs> that Randy Weingarten. It's actually Randy me. Weingarten is Damn. actually you Damn. in a Randy Weingarten costume trying to make government school advocates look bad. Will you admit that right now?
0: Well, we've we've never been seen in the same room at the same time. So it's uh It's quite the possibility that I'm actually wearing a Randy Weingarten mask and going around and getting myself ratioed on her Twitter account nonstop uh, every single day. I mean, did you see that one, uh, a a few, I get so lost on the timeline, maybe it was a month ago, but um, she had said something along the lines like DeSantis is going to cause millions of deaths or he's he's killing millions of people, which was just like are you serious? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like it's just, just so absurd and just out, just like, just extreme. Yeah. And, and she, 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 or maybe it's me that's doing it. Maybe um, it's you misspelled misspells thing. Yeah. Maybe, she, maybe I'm doing it on purpose on her Twitter account. Just misspelling <laughs> everything. Every time she, she, or maybe it's me uh, tweets governors. Um, it's governor apostrophe S, but it's not supposed to be possessive. It's just more than one governor, but it's always wrong. It's not like it's, I don't, I don't know, it doesn't seem, it's so often that it doesn't seem like it's just a typo. It just happens all the time. Makes you wonder who's in charge of the education system. But it, it, if if it were me, I mean, that would be a great strategy for a school choice advocate, advocate to make the teachers unions look bad.
2: You're doing a great job. If this is indeed you, you and your constant <laughs> misspellings of basic words uh, are, are definitely doing I, I like the one where she put out— th- By the way, for those who aren't on Twitter, this is one of Corey and favorite— hobbies on twitter is helping ratio randy weingarten and and other similar uh government choice advocates who will put out some of the most stupid thing you know school choice is rooted in racism and their proof of that is that someone who supported school choice was friends with someone who said something racist it's like you're (laughs) advocating for literal segregation that is mostly affected poor children and students of color but we're the races for saying that should end and that they should be exactly. allowed to go to richer, whiter schools. We're the we're the real races here. Um but let that let's was the talk.
0: Chicago that was the Chicago Teachers Union, by the way, who also had a tweet that they deleted shortly after. After I responded to the tweet with evidence that the school closures had led to inequities by race and income, uh Chicago <laughs> Teachers Union had tweeted out something along the lines of the push. Uh, for reopening his schools is rooted in racism, sexism, and misogyny. They included wow. all of it in there. It's pretty much, you know, you know, you've, you know, they've lost the argument when they go straight to the, oh, it just must be racist. I mean, school the choice figure. is really hard to argue against. So I kind of feel bad for them. Like, what else are they supposed, what else are they supposed to There's no logical argument against allowing families to take their children's education Dollars to the school that works best for them, whether that's a public or a private school. You can still choose the public school. So they start to create all of these narratives about things that you actually didn't say. They'll say that you're anti-public school, or that you just hate teachers, or that you. Um, they'll and they'll they'll, they'll try to cre- they'll try to question the history of school choice, for example, which yeah, they get yeah. completely backwards. But even if they did get it right, that's a genetic fallacy. That's in just because something was bad long ago doesn't mean it's bad now um which they get the history all wrong on school choice as well but that's another conversation
2: yeah it's 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 funny to watch them like you know that's bigoted and it's like but what how like i you and me saying i think that poor kids of color uh should be able to uh and 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 poor kids in general not just but but including poor kids of color should be able to go to uh better performing schools uh and i think that by removing the monopoly uh you could have better performing schools that are in those poorer areas you know it wouldn't just be in the rich areas that the schools are because now the money's tied to the parents there are actually more kids in poorer areas than there are in richer areas typically speaking like per household so naturally speaking more than likely a lot of these new schools are going to pop up in those poorer areas and be far better performing and then we say that and they go well, you're a, you're obviously a bigot and a racist
0: well no that's true right the charter schools are more likely to show up in in areas that have lower performing traditional public schools that's yeah. that's the market filling filling a need right and and yeah. and um That's what we've seen in the charter school sector. If you look nationwide at the students that use charter schools, they happen to be a higher proportion of lower income students in charter schools than in traditional public schools for that reason. Um, But I also want to hit on something that you touched on earlier, where you said like, you know, the money following the child is kind of like Medicare for all. And what's interesting to me and what I like to point out in these conversations every single time is that. A lot of the policies that people support on the left um, fund individuals as opposed to institutions. For example, with higher education, we have Pell Grants. The Pell Grant funding doesn't go to a community college that you're residentially assigned to and then you're you're forced to spend the money there. Instead, the the Pell Grant funding goes to the student and they're rightfully able to choose to take that money to a public provider of educational services or a private provider of educational services. It could even be a religious or non-religious uh, university of their choosing. The same thing with the federal Head Start program with pr- other and other pre-K programs. The funding doesn't go to a residentially assigned government-run provider of pre-K, regardless of your choice. The money instead typically goes to the family, and then they can choose a public or private religious or non-religious provider of pre-K services. We do the same thing with Medicaid dollars. You could use them at Catholic religious hospitals if you want. You can We do the same thing with food stamp dollars. We don't force low-income families to spend their food stamp dollars at a residentially assigned government-run grocery store. Instead, the funding goes to the family, and you can choose Walmart, Trader Joe's, Safeway, Harris Teeter. The funding follows the decision of the family, and all I'm arguing for is to keep the same funding in the system, but instead of giving it to a government-run building, regardless of how well they do, and from what we've seen over the past year, regardless of whether they even open their doors for business – give that money to the families and let them take it to the, the government building if they want, if that works for them. But if not, let them take it to another provider, just like we do with all of these other programs where the funding follows the decision of the family. And And a lot of the people that, that support funding individuals directly when it comes to food stamps and Pell Grants and pre-K yeah. programs, they only oppose it when it comes to those in-between years of 8 to 12 education. And the only difference there is one of power dynamics, Choice is the norm with higher education and pre-K and just about everything else, but choice threatens an entrenched special interest, the teachers' union monopoly, only when it comes to K-12 education, so they fight tooth and nail against any change to that status quo because they want to have that monopoly on your kids' education dollars, even if that means those kids being stuck in a situation where they're bullied, getting horrible academic outcomes and uh, are just not in a situation that's working for them because they got to
2: protect their grift. Exactly. This is uh, it's, it's incredible. And every debate we're having right now over things like critical race theory, over things like trans kids in sports, all of these things. The reason that these debates are so white hot is because the people having them are stuck in that school regardless. So if it goes against what they wanted, if, if they're in favor of critical race theory being taught and that doesn't happen, well, now their kid's stuck in a school where CRT isn't being taught and vice versa. If they, they don't want their kids being taught CRT and then that gets implemented, then they you know their kids are stuck in a school where, where it is. Whereas if you simply let the kids go where they want, oh, this school is implementing CRT. That's great. I want my kid getting CRT. Okay, good. I'll go to the school and, and it's a high performing school. I'll go to that or they're not teaching crt that's great that's where i want to go or they are teaching crt no i don't want that or they do have trans uh sports trans friendly sports great i'll take my kids there because that's what i want or no i'll take my kids somewhere else because that's what i don't want by allowing the market the consumer to decide where their money goes that allows for more uh diverse and equitable outcomes as a result of people being able to choose where they actually go let's talk about some of the myths around um Uh, some of the myths around uh, school, the school choice, uh, both from, uh, I guess, on the left and also from, you know, with even within libertarian circles. Tell us some of the most common, um, some of the most common, uh, I guess, myths or detractors, things that they say, critiques of homes of, of school choice. And, you know, tell me what your answer is to those.
0: Yeah, and real quick, when you mentioned all of these one-size-fits-all problems that are popping up with critical race theory debates and the masking debates, whether you want in-person or remote instruction, you're right that all of these problems are just symptoms of the larger issue, which happens to be the one-size-fits-all government school system. Uh, And the obvious solution, if we ever want to get out of these fights and these battles at the school board meetings, is to allow the funding to follow the child to wherever they're getting an education to the educational provider that best aligns with their family's values and preferences. If you want critical race theory in your school, I'm totally fine with that, as long as it's chosen and you're not forced into that situation. Same thing if you want a school that's masking all the kids or is not masking all the kids. Uh, The only way that we'll solve these disagreements ever, I mean, and it's always going to be something, right? Because people disagree about what should be included in the curriculum. Um, And so one 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 size fits all curriculum just isn't gonna work for a large society. And we shouldn't try to force our views on other people's kids through the government school system. So I think we should all be in favor of, of school choice. But let's hit, yeah, the biggest myth in the school choice debate. Uh, we've all heard it before, right? So school choice sounds great and all, but um, school choice steals money from the public schools or school choice siphons away funding from the public schools. And my typical response to that is that allowing families to choose their grocery store doesn't steal money from Walmart. Allowing people to choose their school doesn't steal money from public schools. And we all understand that when it comes to groceries, because we understand that your food stamp money, for example, doesn't belong to Walmart or Trader Joe's. It belongs right. to the families, and they can choose to take it to Walmart or Trader Joe's that they want, but it's not, uh, it doesn't uh, just automatically go to one particular institution over the other. Similarly, K-12 education funding is meant for the child and their family is the direct beneficiary of that funding, not the institution. The money doesn't belong to the government schools in the first place. So no, allowing families to choose their school doesn't steal money from the public or the private schools. But, um, yeah. And my second response real quick is that, well, if your first knee-jerk reaction action to allowing families to choose is that your institution is going to be destroyed or defunded what does that tell you about your confidence in the services that you're providing to those families well i mean this this main argument against school choice actually turns out to be one of the best arguments for school choice if family if you're if you think that families are going to run somewhere else and that you have to trap their kids in your institutions that's an argument to allow those families to have choices not to trap them in, into your institutions. And then third, my last response to that is more of a technical point, but mathematically, public schools actually financially benefit when they lose students to their, to their competition. They're funded based on enrollment counts, but they're not totally funded based on enrollment counts. Uh, in Texas, for example, the funding formula shows that about two thirds of the funding is based on the amount of students that you have in the school. So what does that mean mathematically when you lose a student, You get to keep thousands of dollars for students that are no longer there. And so that means you're going to have a higher per pupil revenue in the public schools when you lose students to your competition. Uh, Just imagine if you stopped shopping at Walmart, started shopping at Trader Joe's for whatever reason, and Walmart got to keep a third of your grocery bill each week. That would be a great deal for Walmart. And I would argue that it's it's similarly a great deal for the public schools, that get to keep thousands of dollars for kids that they're no longer educating.
2: Yeah, exactly. I'm actually quoting you or paraphrasing you (laughs) and retweeting this episode so that people can see what it is you're saying right now. Um, School
0: choice, school choice doesn't steal money from public schools. Public schools steal money from families. School choice initiatives just return the hand, the money to the hands of the rightful owners, the, the kids and their families. And if they want to take Gosh. that money back to the public schools they can. And you're giving uh,
2: me too many quotes. School choice doesn't steal <laughs> from
0: schools. School choice doesn't steal money from public schools. Public schools steal money from families.
1: There School choice
0: doesn't steal money. School choice doesn't defund public schools. Public schools defund themselves when they fail to meet the needs of families. I got tons of I got tons of one liners. Okay, here. no, those those two are good.
2: Doesn't defund public schools public public schools defund themselves
0: by failing to meet the needs of families year after year to meet the needs of families gosh there we go but that's I mean look that's that's the main argument that's put forth by the teachers union and it goes to show the mindset that they have they they believe that your children and the dollars that are meant for educating your children belong to their institutions whereas our side says well Families should be able to take their money to those institutions, but from the get-go, that money belongs to the kids and their families. It doesn't belong to the government-run schools. It doesn't belong to the private schools either. Just like food stamps don't belong to Walmart or Trader Joe's, right. K-12 through education dollars don't belong to public or private schools. That They belong to the families, and I think yeah, that's a winning message for our side.
2: It, it would literally be like if the way we were feeding poor people right now was like bread lines like they did in the Soviet mm-hmm. Union. And someone said, hey, why don't we instead just give them vouchers and they can go wherever they want to get food? And people said, you're stealing money from the bread yeah. lines. And it's like, yeah. well, I mean, I guess sort of. We're actually just letting them take it to where they want to get it. No, that's a pr- a- – absolutely. So let's let's talk about the – there is a at least one libertarian critique of school choice, and it's one that I've talked about in the past, that, that is, I will say, at least partially still a concern of mine. By switching to a system of um, – well, so actually, let's, there's, there's another libertarian argument that I actually don't – I've never really agreed with, um, but we, we can talk about that, which is this isn't fully free market education because it's not simply getting government out of it entirely, completely, you know, eliminating all taxation for schooling and simply making it free market. And therefore, libertarians shouldn't support it because it isn't an immediate step towards, you know, basically pushing the Rothbard button on education and getting government out of it entirely. What What is your your response to that?
0: Yeah, I'll just say for your listeners, if you didn't hear me at the beginning, I'm a narco capitalist. Um, yep. So I understand the concerns that libertarians might have with school choice as not being the perfect solution, but we shouldn't make perfect the enemy of the good. School choice is a step in the right direction towards reducing the amount of government intrusion in the entire education system and towards allowing families to have more of a say in their children's education. And the way that I put it before uh, is that I like to use the food stamp analogy. We've been talking about this the entire episode that just imagine if you had two situations one where we had food stamps for everybody and everybody had to use those food stamps at a residentially assigned government-run grocery store that would be horrible but imagine if we also had another situation which is far from perfect but everybody had food stamps that were funded by the taxpayer but at least you could take them to different providers of the service that you weren't residentially assigned to that were privately managed privately operated Neither of those situations would be that great, but obviously the latter is more preferable to the former where everything's run by the government completely, and you have to take the money to a residentially assigned uh, government-run grocery store. That would be absolutely horrible. With school choice, uh, the default option is that 90% of the school-age population essentially has this funding And all of the taxpayer funding essentially goes to these residentially assigned government-run institutions. With school choice mechanisms, families and schools are able to decide whether they want to take that funding away from the government-run institution to a private provider of the education services. And the great thing about it is that the, the family has a choice in the matter. They can say, I don't, if the regulatory costs exceed the financial benefits of the program, The families can say, you know what, I'm not going to do it because I don't want to do this standardized test or I don't want to do whatever else uh, type of string is attached. Same thing with the private schools. With more regulations, uh, if you have a specialized private school, they can say, I'm not going to take the money. I'm not going to take any of the voucher students. I'm going to remain specialized. And we do see that play out in the real world, too. One of the most regulated voucher programs is the Louisiana Scholarship Program. They require you to surrender your admission standards over to the state yet have to have a, a random admissions policy they require that you take the state standardized test you can't even pick your test it has to be a particular test and they require that you take the voucher amount let's say it's $7000 as full payment so if you have a, a tuition of 11 or 12000 you have to accept the $7000 voucher as full payment so all of these things are highly restrictive and problematic for 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 Uh, private schools that want that want to remain specialized and what we've seen in the Louisiana program was in the first year of the program about two-thirds of the private schools decided not to participate so even if you have a market of some of the private schools having some of these government strings attached one a lot of those private schools might have not existed otherwise because they had financial hardships uh, because they're competing with the free good essentially uh, the the government-run school system and so you can help them remain intact. And then two, you still have a sector of the market that that says, I'm going to remain specialized. And um, so you increase the demand, you allow for a, a larger supply of private providers, and then some of them will remain highly specialized regardless of the of the type of program that you have enacted because they don't have to participate. If the schools had to participate and the families had to use the funding, I would be Uh, A little more skeptical of these programs. But look, they're a step in the right direction. There's choice at every um, step of the way on the part of the family on the part of the school. And uh, because of that, I think it's a a libertarian solution that's better than what we have today, which is, look, if you can't afford these, these alternatives, you're stuck in a very highly regulated government controlled system.
2: Yeah. And, and it, it does two other things, and, and which you touched on. One, it it introduces the idea of market-based choice to parents who have been told this is the only way to do it, which can open that discussion for continued deregulation and continuing to get government out of it, especially if schools are able to show that they can do it for a lot less, Uh, you can begin to see a a reduction in funding for it and things like that. It also creates an ecosystem of market-based schools who are uh, marketing to the parents to get their money instead of, you know, basically becoming unions at unionized and going and joining the, uh, the the government and and just, you know, basically marketing to government, you know, advocating to government through their unions as opposed to marketing to the, the consumer. Um, this I think mostly or at least partially addresses my concern, but we can talk about it a little more, which is that, you know, in a School choice system so let 's say if tomorrow if if you know in the next you know later by the end of the year one hundred percent of um of states uh, and the federal government have implemented school choice, so any parent. Uh, has the ability if they wish to take their take the money you know the amount of money assigned to their kid and go to whatever school they want even though the parent is the consumer it's still the government that's paying the bill and so my concern has been that or my concern has been even as a step down that unless we were still constantly trying to advocate for more and more deregulation you could end up with a situation where sort of foot in the door for for government to end up Kind of taking over the the private schools and the charter schools, and yes, there is the fact that, like you said, uh, private institutions could choose not to accept the money. But if there's a bunch of money they can be getting, a lot of them mm-hmm. might choose to accept it. Um, what what is your thoughts about that that concern, even in that short term period, uh, as a step down?
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it could even be a long term problem. Too right, where the, the program starts out being unregulated, and then they get the private schools on the hook, and the private right. schools have this um source of revenues that they're relying on, and then in the long yeah. run, the law changes, and then now you're stuck in a situation where the private schools opted into the program under one set of regulations, and then later on, there's uh, essentially from one year to, a ne- to the next all of these in huge huge, um, uh, costly regulations, which that is a possibility. Um, and and I understand it. But at at that point, one, private schools still have the option of opting out, which it's, it's not, it wouldn't be as easy to do if they're already hooked and, and accepting customers using these vouchers. Um, and then two, look, I mean, it's still, it's still a situation where uh, it's better than what we have today that the status quo is that we have very few private providers of educational services and the money's the money's still there it's just going to a government institution rather than a private institution and and i don't think we should make the perfect of the enemy of the good when it comes to to this just because there might be something in the future that uh, makes us worse off i think i think the thing that we should pay attention to and learn from is to fight back against any of these types of regulations into the future. So whenever a a program comes into play, push back against parts of the bill that have uh, regulations for private schools or private providers of educational services. And they do differ. For example, the Louisiana program is extremely regulated. The the Florida program is a lot less regulated, for example. Uh, One way to to fend off these p- p- potential regulations is to push for something called tax credit scholarships, which Florida has. They're privately funded; they the, the funding never enters the tax collector's hands. But the teachers' union still fights against it because it reduces the likelihood that they'll they'll have enrollment counts uh, in their public in the traditional public schools, and the donate the the donations towards these scholarships you get a tax credit kind of benefit for doing so. Uh, So the teachers union will still call them publicly funded. They'll say the money should have went to the government. So therefore it's government funding or taxpayer funding. But according to the law, these are still, these are privately funded programs because they never enter the tax collector's hands. So they tend to be less likely to be regulated with, uh, uh, with the types of regulations that you see in Louisiana. So that's okay. one way to kind of reduce the likelihood of this happening. Uh, and then uh, two, another another a type of school choice that we've seen to be less regulated than others is something called an education savings account. So it's kind of like the voucher idea where the, the the money that would have followed your kid to the public school, you can take it instead of in the form of a voucher to pay for private school tuition and fees, it goes into something called an ed- Education savings account for your kid, you can then take the funding to pay for private school tuition and fees, but you can also use it to pay for any approved education expenditure which could be tutoring, textbooks, special needs yeah. therapy, and because there's all of these different providers that you can spend the money on it becomes more and more difficult from a regulatory standpoint. Because with vouchers, you just have to regulate the private schools that participate in the program. When it comes to education savings accounts, it becomes infinitely complicated for the regulator. And what we've seen on the ground is that these education savings accounts have been a lot less regulated than voucher programs. So that's another Mm -hmm. way to to reduce the likelihood of long-term regulation is to push for these things called education savings accounts. And thankfully, what we've seen this past year in 2021, which I would call the year of school choice, partially because of Randy Weingarten and the teachers unions for overplaying their hand and really just stepping in over and over again and showing us their true colors. Um, But what we've seen in these states is that education savings accounts have been some of some of the um, most often introduced bills in different legislatures. So I'm 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 optimistic going forward. One, because we've seen so many victories, but then two, because we're seeing the best gold standard type of educational freedom being put on the table.
2: And by giving the parents the ability to have it in a savings account, they now, as opposed to use it or lose it, now they're going to not just look for the best performing schools. They're going to try to get good values on it, too, because that will allow them to have money to to leave behind for maybe – uh, college scholarship or trade school or you know educational whatever they can determine to be educational uh, in in nature for their kid which could even potentially be things like you know extracurricular programs sports programs summer camp you know you have a situation where the parents are actually trying to get really good not just good value in terms of you know the school being good but actually good money good you know uh, value you know uh, uh, dollars per donuts value so they can actually have money left over to spend on stuff but long story short wherever way we go with this you're you're saying pretty much what we're saying with everything school choice is not the end victory it's just one of many steps we need to take towards complete liberation of all of us in all ways including in education so we we certainly
0: agree there And, and i mean look the government's trying to regulate homeschooling and private schooling already regardless of the funding going to families So if at least we arm families with more um, freedom to choose their educations and to be more um, just okay and experienced with private providers of education, I think we'll have another uh, constituency that could fend off regulations in the future. Whereas yeah. if we have a really small market share of private schools and homeschoolers, it's easier for the rest of the population to look at that small minority of private educators and to say, Oh, you know, that's, that's a little different. We, we might not be okay with what they're doing over here. Let's regulate the crap out of them. Whereas if you have a, a broader base of people participating in the private sector You'll have more of a likelihood that you'll be able to fend off those government regulations with power and numbers, essentially.
2: Right. Uh, No, exactly. That's that's exactly what ends up happening. The more you have people whose mind is towards I get to decide this, I get to decide where the money goes, the less you have people saying, please just provide this to me because they realize a lot of people don't realize they'll actually make a better choice or they, they do know that, but they still get conditioned and browbeaten into being told, no, 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 we'll make a better choice for you. Once they see over and over and over and over again, that they're making better choices, Even if they're not the most intelligent people on earth, uh, they're probably at least as intelligent as the people working in the government. But if not, even if the people in the government were more intelligent than them, they actually have a vested interest in making the right choice. Whereas the government sometimes has a more often than not has a perverse incentive to make the wrong choice or the the bad choice. I've had a few people that have requested that you explain what kind of briefly explain what a charter school is. Um, We've talked about charter schools, but they've said, what exactly is that?
0: Yeah. And on paper, charter schools are defined in every state that that has them as, quote unquote, public schools. But it's a little bit more complicated than that. So you have private schools, right, that are pretty much pure private entities. They're operated by private entities. They're mostly funded by private out-of-pocket funding. Um, Then you have the the government run schools, uh, what most people call public schools. And um, they're highly regulated. They're mostly funded by the taxpayer. In the middle, you got this kind of quasi public, quasi private entity that people call charter schools and charter schools are run by private entities. So in that sense, they're private schools. But on another hand, they're mostly funded by the taxpayer, by quote unquote public dollars. They're highly regulated by the government. In most places, yep. in order to start a charter school, you have to go to these authorizing boards, which a lot of the times are the schools that they're competing with. It's kind of like McDonald's having to pr- approve every Burger King that opens in an area, which is a huge conflict yes. of interest. Yet we have that yep. in a lot of states with the charter schools. And uh, they they're, so they're regulated. They're highly regulated by the government. They are funded by the taxpayer, but they're they're... Privately operated and managed. So they're, I would call them a quasi public, quasi private school. And one of those regulations is that they have to accept all students by at random. So, in a sense, charter schools are actually more quote unquote public than government schools in that they can't discriminate by zip code for the most part. For most part, mm. charter schools in general can't have admission standards. They can't. Whereas like magnet schools, which are run by the government and, and are quote unquote public schools, they can have admissions criteria. Um and but charter schools can't generally can't have that. They can't have admission standards and they can't discriminate based on your geography. So in a sense, they're more public like a public park than right. a government run school. Um but I would call them a quasi-public, quasi-private school. And I wouldn't call government schools public schools. I would call them government schools.
2: Okay, so it's actually a so it's a public school.
0: Yeah, but, the, but as far as the provider, it's not government-run. Um, yeah. So that, I mean, that's another reason why I like to call quote-unquote public schools or the traditional schools government schools, because it provides some clarity between charter schools and traditional schools. Charter schools are not run by the government, but most state governments define the district schools and charter schools as, quote-unquote, public schools, which creates a lot of confusion. But if you just say that the district schools are government-run schools, whereas charter schools are charter schools, and you call private schools private schools, it allows you to really um, uh, specify exactly and clarify what you're talking about.
2: Right. Uh, Stephen Shepard just says that the correct term should be government indoctrination center. Um, but regard- so a uh, really sharp pivot on kind of the same subject, but applied to something completely different. Uh, like we alluded to earlier, this isn't the only place where government has just completely taken over the provision and control of a, of a service. You and I actually did a panel together. Uh, in um, at Freedom Fest a couple months ago, uh, with it was you, me, and uh, and Maj Turey, and is it Tate Begley? Is that his name?
0: Tate fegley yeah, he's at uh, Pitt, University of Pittsburgh. He's a postdoc yeah. there.
2: Yeah, and uh, but and we did it on something called the failures of police socialism, and it was funny because the Freedom Fest crowd was. Mostly conservative. There were certainly a lot of libertarians there, but it was mostly conservative. And I think that the people coming in to look at that panel had no clue what we were about to talk about. And it was the it was a lot of – yes, exactly. It was a bunch of boomer cons who showed up, I think primarily because Maj Ture was there and we taught, we're talking about the failures of socialism. And they weren't ready for what we were about to talk about. And I think it was well received. Talk to me about what police (laughs) socialism is and how that applies to what we've been talking about today.
0: Well, it's the same arguments, right, Um, that uh, the problems with the school system is that we all live in a particular residence and we're assigned to a school regardless of whether we like that school, regardless of how well it meets our needs. And we have to fund that school through the property tax system. So there's a huge amount of monopoly power in the K-12 education system. We have the same problem when it comes to the provision of police services. You live in a particular place and you have these police departments that are in your area That receive your funding, regardless of how well they do, regardless of how fast they come when you call them, and regardless of how um, well they respect your rights in terms of not discriminating against particular types of citizens, or um, regardless of whether they uh, respect your rights in other ways as well. And so because you don't have a choice in the provider of policing services, they have very little incentive to cater to your needs and to do the right thing for their customers. It's the same argument for, for the schools as it is for the police departments. So I yeah. actually made a, I actually wrote an article in 2018 in a uh, journal called uh, libertarian papers. And the, 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 uh, the, title of the paper was police choice. And I think, I believe I'm the first person that came up with the idea. I, I just applied the same logic of school choice to this idea of police choice, where you can choose your provider of policing services, and you can choose it based on how fast the police respond to your calls, um, whether they are um, discriminating against their customers, whether they are uh, killing innocent people, uh, you can essentially defund the police in a different, in a better way, right? You can defund the bad police just like we defund the bad schools with vouchers, right? And so you can think of a couple of ways of doing it. You can have private providers of policing services, or if you're not okay with that and you feel like that's too much of a stretch, you can also have like a government run police model, just that you're not, it's not a residentially assigned type of situation where instead right. you can choose the the police departments that receive your uh, family's uh, police services dollars or just like with education, it would be your ed- family's education dollars. But in this sense, it would be the money that's allocated for protecting your family. You could direct it to one, one police department over the other. And, and then you'd have a way- true free feedback mechanism. So like when you had the George Floyd incident, for example, that was a huge problem. Everybody understood that was a problem. And um kind of what we saw in the aftermath was just, you know, people got upset about it and they're you know, maybe you can argue there was there was some accountability through the court system, but it took so much national pressure for anything to happen. And this is yeah. happening all across the country. And and not all of it has always been recorded on camera, for example, not not yeah. all of these things are clear cut cases. Just imagine if instead you could say, okay, there's a problem there, I'm going to take my family's policing dollars to this, this department over here that respects my rights. And so you'd have a marketplace for uh, policing services, that's the, and, that's, the, that's the basic concept.
2: And an interesting parallel, another one of the many parallels, obviously policing and schooling are different in many ways, but in terms of the socialist monopolies create unaccountability and uh, uh, harmful and abusive and inequitable outcomes, and that it would be better to have a market-based you know, market provision, or at least a choice-based provision, like you said. Uh, another interesting parallel. One of the reasons that uh, we, as you called last year, the, the year of school choice was because for the first time, parents could actually watch and see what school was like for their kids. They didn't like it. They were like, wow, this is what school is like? When you come home and I say, how was school? And you go, it was okay. And you figure, well, yeah, I guess it was okay this is what it's actually like that's also true with police the reason that we've seen such an increased outcry about police abuse is because they we can no longer those of us who are in more comfortable communities who don't have as much experience dealing with over policing and abusive police uh we can no longer say oh i'm sure the perp got what they were asking for we have to watch hd video of these things happening with the full context so that we can go that was terrible. They shouldn't have done that. That that was murder or that was assault or that was whatever. That was abuse. Technology and people being able to see behind the veil and see what government provision, government mandated, government monopolized, and government enforced, and as you said, residentially based, meaning that when you're richer, you get better stuff and stuff that's more reflective of what you want. And if you're poorer, screw you. That's what it looks like with policing as well. And, you know, it, it's very interesting that, uh, you know, like I said, I I was, especially with Maj Ture being there and talking about shooting cops over and over again, that I was actually surprised by how well our conversation was received by that largely BoomerCon audience. Oh, yeah. Because we were just talking about the fact that, yeah – Government sucks at healthcare and education and uh, and and all these other things, uh, you know, infrastructure and everything else. It also sucks at policing and it kind of forced them to think, yeah, I guess government's not good at that either. That was a very interesting thing.
0: Well, it puts them in a weird predicament how they're supposed to argue argue (laughs) with that. We're consistent. We use the same arguments, whether it comes to education or whether it comes to provision of policing services. These are just different types of services. Yes, there's there's uh, There's some differences, obviously, that you can come up with, but um, the basic arguments of monopolies and socialism still apply and and why this creates problems for for so many families. I mean, and and I like how you pointed out that the government run police system creates inequities, too. Right. You have areas in Detroit where they have signs saying enter at your own risk because the neighborhoods are so dangerous. The government police won't even go to certain neighborhoods and yep. so there are in- inequitable there is an equitable provision of policing services just like there is an equitable pr- provision of government school services as well so when people try to argue that school choice or police choice leads to inequities it doesn't really make any sense when you understand that the status quo is extremely inequitable and the most advantaged have access to the best services already we should allow other families to have access to better one policing services and two educational services and yep. I, it's it's always funny on Twitter. I think I've sent you a few of these tweets before, where I'll say something in favor of school choice because I stick I stick to school choice on social media, right? So I could build coalitions in order to advance this this one thing that I'm specialized on. But then you'll have like the troll that'll that'll respond that is typically someone who supports the status quo when it comes to education, they'll say, right. Oh, you just want to be able to take your tax dollars to whatever school. Why don't we do the same thing for police? You know, yeah. <laughs> we do that for police and it, and they, they think it's a gotcha, right. They think it's like, yeah. Oh man, you know, this guy's a, a conservative. So there's, he's not going to like this. I'm going to get him. And it's like, Oh, by the way, here's this like 30 page report. I wrote coming up with that idea. Oh, what about you know national defense? What about all these other things? It's like, yeah. Actually, what about the roads? Yeah, actually, I do. I do think um, having a toll road system instead of this uh, quote-unquote freeway system would be a, a step in the right direction. Uh, a yes, user yeah. fee for for roads would be great, but I don't get into it with them. It's just, but it is interesting. I mean, there's that account on Twitter, accidentally libertarian, and they yes. post a bunch of these. Sometimes it's like.
2: You don't know who you're
0: arguing with.
2: My favorite thing is when they'll do that, and you and your, you know, you and sixty of your followers, including me, are like, yes, yes, let's definitely yeah. do that. Hey, deal. How about this? We <laughs> we defund we defund the police through through police choice, but we also get to do it with education. Then we both win. You know, like it's like, yeah, no, we're I'm perfectly fine with that compromise of of you know applying this logic to everything government does. Absolutely, let's definitely do it. Yeah, mind blown, right? It's funny, but it is you know they're trying to do a gotcha on you, but the reality is they're the one being inconsistent because yep, yes exactly. we do agree on that now you explain why you don't agree with that on education because it's literally the exact same thing
0: yeah because they would be cool with it for policing but they want to be cool with it when it comes to education and yeah they're stuck in this situation where they just don't reply
2: exactly exactly no I love it man that, that's one of my favorite hobbies on Twitter is making people accidentally be libertarian <laughs> um it's 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 fantastic well look' us uh, uh, uh cory before i let you go uh, first of all i want to say you've been a fantastic guest i always love uh having uh really anyone that that likes to talk about this kind of stuff especially a fellow ANCAP coming on and and really diving into policy specifics with the understanding and again i it, you know we know the rothbard button if it existed both of us i would assume would press the thing until our it, our fingers bled yeah but until it was broken there is no Rothbard button. There is no way to make it go from status quo of the ever-increasing omnipotent state to free market everything. And we recognize we need to start making transitive, real, not not reforms that are no such thing, but real transitive reforming steps away from ever-increasing government and towards market-based solutions. And I, I always appreciate the people that un, that have that that principled and and dare I say radical or or, or certainly principled step uh, uh, tradition or or uh, philosophy of libertarianism, but understand that the, the uh, dare I say pragmatic steps that need to be taken. So thank you again for coming on. But before I let you go, I want to give you a chance. You've already admitted that you may or may not be Randy Weingarten. So I already <laughs> I feel like I've won here already. I feel like that was that was a big win was that we did admit this. But um or you sort of admit it. You didn't fully admit it, but you did admit that the two of you have never been in this same room that's good mm. enough for me it also might be because she hates you and doesn't want to be in the same room as you so it, <laughs> could, it could be either but before i let you go uh i want to give you a chance to give your final thoughts on pretty much anything you want to talk about uh anything you want to promote that's upcoming any upcoming articles that are about to come out any thoughts you gave you wanted to give that we didn't get a chance to talk to think about or talk about pretty much whatever you want to talk about for however long you want uh Corey deangelis <laughs> slash randy weingarten the floor is yours
0: Yeah, I would say, look, 2021 is the year of school choice. And the great part about it is it's partially the teachers union's own fault. Um, We should really give Randy Weingarten an award for being the best advocate of school choice and for doing more to advance the concept of school choice than anyone could have ever imagined this past year. Um, We've had 18 or 19 states in 2021 enact or expand programs to fund students as opposed to systems. This is a huge win all across the nation right now, and people are finally figuring out that there isn't any good reason to fund institutions, particularly closed institutions or failing institutions, when you can fund students directly instead. And the latest Real Clear Opinion research polling on this found a 10 percentage point jump in support of school choice since April of 2021, with 64% support in April of 2021 to 74% support in June of in April, in June of 2021 um so it's a huge wow. groundswell of support families are figuring it out i mean even democrats if you look at the latest reporting uh polling from echelon insight insights i wrote about in wall street journal uh, a week ago um i don't even remember the title of the article but it was something like mask turn mask debates turn democrats in favor of school choice was the thrust of the article and the question in the poll asked would you support a voucher to attend a private or home school if your public school did not mandate masks? 82% of the Democrats that responded with an opinion supported vouchers for private and home schools if their public school did not mandate masks. So they like mask mandates so much that they would support school choice in order to get that policy that they wanted. Um, And so that goes to show that this shouldn't be a partisan issue everybody can get behind it for different reasons i don't care what that reason is but you at the same time on the other end of the aisle should be able to reach across and say i agree that you should be able to 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 take your children's education dollars to a private school for uh, whatever it is maybe you don't like that crt is being taught maybe you don't like that crt is not being taught in a fair way maybe you don't like that your school isn't mandating masks. It shouldn't matter what the reason is for that decision. We should all be able to come together and say, um, the money belongs to the kids and the families, and you should be able to educate your child in the way that you see fit. At the same time, I should be able to educate my children in a way that aligns with my values, and we shouldn't feel the need to force other people's kids to be in institutions that align that don't align with their family's values. I think we should all be able to go our own ways with our own kids' educations. And I think this is the only way forward out of this mess that we're in currently, where people are fighting, um, sometimes violently, about the one-size-fits-all government school system. We don't. It doesn't need to be this way. And the best way out of this, I think, the only way out of this that is feasible in the short term is to have the funding follow the child to wherever they're getting an education. So hopefully more people can get on board. I think uh, we're just beginning to see uh, the support for this nationwide. I mean, there's also two ballot initiatives in California to have this uh, statewide, have $13,000, $14,000 per child, follow them statewide to wherever they're getting an education. We'll see if it it actually uh, gets approved through the ballot initiative process, but I think that's the best chance we have out in California to get that done. So hopefully we can get this done in red states and in blue states going forward. And if you want to join the fight to fund students, not systems, you can go to fundstudentsnotsystems.org and you can sign up and find specific bills that are going through your legislature to do just that, to fund students, not systems. It's kind of easy to remember the website because I say this so many times, but funds students, not systems.org. You can also follow me on Twitter at, at DeAngelisCorey. I announce all of these bills whenever any, any developments, um, uh, come into play to, to, to expand these types of programs.
2: Yeah. And, uh, I just put the, uh, the website fund in the, uh, in the comments on, on everywhere that we're streaming. So people can see that, you know, something you just talked about libertarianism, free markets and free choices completely eliminate the culture war because all of these arguments over mask mandates and CRT and freaking transports and whether this version of history is taught or this version or, you know, all of these different fights, you know, common core, even stuff like the metric system, like uh, stuff that, you know, often, you know, is is fought even Mm -hmm. in a fringe way. And all these things are being fought in this white hot way, like you said, sometimes violently fought. Uh, are happening because everyone knows that whoever wins, everyone has to live under that. Everyone has to exist under that. Applying that to schooling, none of this matters as much anymore in terms of fighting it against everyone else because you can simply take your kid to a school whose values on masks and CRT and transports and literally everything else – reflects yours and reflects what you want them to be taught as opposed to this where if your side loses then you're screwed you're segregated into your school district and it's just that you either have to move or pay out of pocket um so and this is true of everything libertarianism and applied you know uh uh, um consistently across the board you disinflames, reduces the inflammation in our society by letting people to be free to choose who they associate with. And it's just it's an incredible thing that, like you said, you know, you know, almost what over 80 percent, 82 percent of Democrats were like, yes, I support school choice. Whether it was said that way or not, they literally support school choice. So, no, I think this can definitely be the year for it. And Like you said, the momentum is on our side for it. Corey, thank you again so much for coming on. Uh, Stick around because I'm going to talk with you uh, during the outro. But thanks again, man. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much,
2: Spike. Absolutely, man. And folks, thank you so much for tuning in to this amazing episode. I told you it was going to be a good episode uh, of My Fellow Americans. Uh, Thank you again for tuning in. Uh, Join us on Muddy Waters Media tomorrow. uh, Matt Wright uh, on the writer's block. Uh, His guest is going to be Magnus Panvidia. He's going to be talking about the upcoming... And the Damn Wars rally in Washington, D.C. on September 11th, starting at noon at the John Marshall Park in Washington, D.C. We're going to talk about that more in just a bit. Uh, and then on Friday, that's tomorrow at 8 p.m. Eastern uh, on the Writer's Block here on Muddy Waters Media. On Friday at 9.30 Eastern is another episode of Cajun and Eskimo from Bayou to Igloo, where Noel and Nullick... The Cajun Libertarian and the Eskimo Libertarian talk about, I honestly don't know what they're going to talk about, but that's a really fun show. I love watching that. Uh, and then on Saturday, uh, you can join me in first in Eastern Maryland, in the morning. Uh, we are having a crab and chicken feast. I'm told it's sold out, but I bet if you happen to email the chair of the Libertarian Party of Maryland at chair at lpmaryland.org, they might be able to cram a couple more people in there. I don't know. I don't know. Just reach out to them. We'll see. They might be getting mad at me because we sold out a while ago and more people keep emailing them. But I'm going to see how much we can fill this place with uh, with, with libertarian anarcho crabertarians um, but we're going to be you can see you can watch me eat like 15 or 20 crabs you think i can't do it i literally can you can watch me do it there uh but then join me uh later that day we're going to be doing a caravan over to the end the damn wars rally in washington dc at september 11th uh on starting it's going to be starting at noon i'll be getting there i believe at four it'll be at john marshall park there are going to be a bunch of speakers there uh including me uh scott horton um many other uh great a- uh, anti-war activists across the spectrum not just libertarians we are a this is a coalition that is being built to end all of the wars not just in afghanistan in getting the troops out of Afghanistan, out of Iraq, out of Syria, out of Libya, out of uh, being involved in Yemen, bringing all the troops home and ending the authorization of use of military force and making the military into what it was supposed to be a force to defend us, not to defend the interest of cronies and bankers and foreign dictators and drug cartels and pederasts and terror groups and everything else. That's what we're going to be doing uh, on Saturday. Then on a Monday, uh, join us at uh uh well if you're in if you're in the Baltimore area on Sunday uh reach out to the Libertarian Party of Maryland cuz we're doing a Waffle House get together I don't know all the details of that, but reach out to us on that. Then on Monday, join us right back here on Muddy Waters Media at 8 p.m. for Mr. America, The Bearded Truth, where Jason Lyon uh, deep dives into a specific uh, subject every single week and uh, one of the smartest people you'll ever ever meet. So definitely be sure to tune in. Join us next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern uh, for the Muddy Waters of Freedom where Matt Wright and I will parse through the entire week's events like the sweet little chipper boys that we are. And then next Wednesday, join us right back here Uh, At same spike place, same spike time uh, for uh, another episode of My Fellow Americans, where my guest will be the I want to make sure I'm saying her name right. Hold on one second. Where my guest will be uh, Julia Krill, who is the uh, director of public relations for students uh, for Liberty. We'll be talking about all sorts of fun stuff. So join us for that. But again, folks, thanks again for tuning into this episode of My Fellow Americans. And thank you for being a part of Muddy Waters Media. I'm Spike Cohen and you are the power. God bless, guys.